afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, NAPS, Galactic Constant, and Acupuncture. In addition, Professor Gregory Benford will discuss science in fiction and his book, The Sunborn. Also, we'll find out what magic numbers are. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Rockatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing awesome, but I don't know about the universe. What about life? What about everything? Isn't it run by two rats or something? It's run by the number 42, I think. 42? Yeah. Indeed. So speaking of the universe and the meaning of it all, what's your favorite universal constant? Uh, e to the pi i. Okay, not transcendental. Some cosmological value. Uh, Avogadro's number. It's actually something that's even a little bit more profound. It's this number that's very close to 1 over 137. It's called the uh, fine structure constant of the universe. So it's a way to relate the light emitted from the interactions of electricity and magnetism. And while we believe that it should be a fundamental and a constant value, some theorists believe that it changes as the universe ages. But this is supposed to be some sort of fundamental principle of how electromagnetism works? It's actually more fundamental than that. It's the theory of the interactions behind electromagnetism. And until now, these theorists believe that it could change as the universe aged. But recent study that came out with scientists here in Berkeley showed that this value is more or less constant, at least over the last 7 billion years. Okay, but if the value was not constant, what would that imply for the universe? The fundamental nature of matter would change. Okay, well, I've never really believed in matter anyway. (laughs) (laughs) What's the matter? Dark matter. Uh, In in fact, there is some correlation between this and dark matter, but because we don't know how much exactly there is in the universe, it's hard to tell. But if further studies show that there are changes in this value, and this is due to the data from light coming from uh, the Doppler shift and galaxies millions and billions of years away from here, we may be able to determine it someday, but right now, instead of data that we have, shows that it's more or less a constant. Oh, well, that's good news for us, everybody in the universe. They're going to hold together for a while longer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this was presented at the American Physical Society in late April, and one of the uh, scientists is Jeffrey Newman, here from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Okay, Frank, how tired are you? Pretty exhausted. I'm trying to recover from some strange bug. Uh, is it the gambling bug? No, it's the, some crap was in the pool that got into me. <laughs> bug. If you were feeling very tired, sometimes it actually may be due to your genes. Not just because I was exhausted and didn't sleep enough? Certainly that's one reason, but of course the amount of sleep that people need is actually a function of different types of proteins in their brain, which control basically the sleep-wake cycle. I, I say we should just get rid of it and party all, all night. Apparently that's what a group of researchers are aiming to do with their recent discovery of a gene which at least in fruit flies, it helps them to sleep less and party longer. Wow. You know, this is why ravers should be interested in science. <laughs> yeah, well, they're experimenting pharmacologically with a whole lot of drugs that I have never even heard of. <laughs> so <laughs> there needs to be a study done. So it turns out that a group of researchers led by molecular biologist Chiara Chirelli and colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison identified a particular gene mutation called shaker, which affects an ion channel. And in mutated flies, these flies can sleep less than their non-mutated brethren. Mm-hmm. And it apparently has no effects on their normal behavior. How about their lifespan? Apparently no effects on their lifespan, development, or anything. It just allows wow. them to sleep less, yeah. So it's quite interesting because they also did an experiment where they sleep-deprived both mutated 
non-mutated flies, and the ones with the mutation were able to react quicker with less sleep than the ones that didn't have a mutation. Wow. So I wonder if sleep is just some sort of vestigial function from our evolution. Much like, I guess, an appendix or sex. <laughs> <laughs> so research is actually postulating that this could lead to the ultimate non-sleeping pill. So if anyone wants to stay awake, where should they go? Well, I guess they could go take some amphetamines or they could take a look in the recent edition of Nature. Can you predict the next earthquake? Karnak predicts it'll happen within 28 years. Wow, maybe prediction. Maybe at 28 years or maybe over 28 years. Huh, that's just very, <laughs> very specific. I know, well... Yeah, it turns out there's even more unpredictability about these earthquakes. Hmm. A study carried out by researchers at, at Caltech and Harvard that distribution of the ground shaking cannot be known very well because of how these plates move. Depending on the angle at which the pressure is applied and the amount of force present, it's really hard to tell which direction the rupture is going to occur. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to tell where the damage is going to be. Right, exactly. I mean, we had on that Jean-Philippe Avoir, and he suggested that even the current model is limited simply to a single rupture zone as opposed to an area. Right. The morphology of these earthquakes are less predictable hmm. than we had thought. Just don't live in California, then, or yeah. anywhere near the Ring of Fire. <laughs> <laughs> this was work carried out by Hiro Kawamori at Caltech and James Rice at Harvard University, and it can be seen at the media website at Caltech. Okay, what gives you a headache? Let's see, drinking too much, not sleeping enough. (laughs) So basically your party hard lifestyle. Yeah, basically. All that clubbing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, so what do you use to treat those headaches? Oh, you know, I drink. Party. Party. All right. It makes me forget everything. Uh, Very good. In fact, I don't remember what happened at my last party. (laughs) We're partying right now, aren't we? Yeah. I think we're on some kind of weird hallucinogen. And everyone's invited. Yeah, this is a party you don't want to (laughs) miss, ever. (laughs) All right, well, uh, so it turns out, though, that some alternative medicine, uh, acupuncturists in particular, have postulated for quite some time that acupuncture might help in the treatment of migraines. Wow. So uh, this is, of course, going back to traditional Chinese medicine, which suggests that there are various particular pressure points on the body, which uh, can help alleviate the flow of energy, the qi. I I thought it also released a certain endorphins to numb the pain. That's, I guess, the traditional explanation. But of course, researchers were wondering just exactly how important was the particular location of the needle placement involved in acupuncture relief. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they just tested a group of patients, which either didn't receive acupuncture, received acupuncture, but random pressure points with the needles uh-huh. and of course ones where they're supposed to be specifically placed and they found basically there's people who did receive acupuncture in general had a greater effect they did receive uh, relief but between the groups that had the specifically placed and the ones not specifically placed uh-huh. there was really no difference so just suggest sticking a needle anywhere in your body <laughs> might help uh, relieve uh, the migraine maybe just turns attention away from- yeah well you know if you got needles sticking out of you how can you pay attention to your migraine <laughs> right. wow so what about if we put needles with electric shocks in them <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the sadomasochistic party I think. <laughs> especially depends where you put the needle. (laughs) So this was work carried out by Klaus Lind at the Technical University in Munich and was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Gregory Benford will join us to discuss science fiction and his new novel, The Sunborn. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, those intrepid Mars explorers have finished their initial assault on the Red Planet, and the world anxiously awaits to see what the dynamic duel will be up to next. Well, it turns out that they're headed to Pluto. That's right, Pluto. But we're not talking about the two Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. We're talking about a plot from the new novel by Gregory Benford, who joins us today on Berkeley Grocks. Professor Benford is a professor of physics at the University of California at Irvine. He's also a best-selling science fiction author of more than 20 novels and countless short fiction pieces. He has received the Lord Prize for Contributions to Science, and his fiction has been honored with two Nebula Awards, the John W. Campbell Award and the British SF Award. And we're very honored to welcome you today to Berkeley Grocks, Professor Benford. Certainly glad to be back in Berkeley after all these years. You certainly have some bit of a history. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was at the Lawrence uh, Radiation Lab for four years after mm-hmm. my doctorate. I had an office way up at the top of the hill and lived in Alamo. Mm-hmm. And then was offered a position at UC Irvine and decided I'd like to live on the beach because I'm a surfer. So, oh, okay. so at least you can surf down there where the water's a little bit warmer. Boy, no kidding. Yeah. I once tried to swim at Santa Cruz and almost got frostbite. <laughs> You're both, uh, interestingly, a science fiction writer and a practicing physicist. I'm just curious which came first and what sort of sparked the other. Well, I prefer the chicken over the egg. Isaac Asimov remarked to me once that the majority of all the scientists he'd ever met had actually read SF first before getting interested in science. And that was true of me. It was true of Isaac and a lot of other people like Heinlein and Clark and Bradbury and so on, except Bradbury wasn't a scientist. Science fiction plays a role of being the the kind of underground literature for the technocratic class or those who will be in that class. And you have to be there. The golden age of science fiction is 14, as was first said by Peter Graham in Berkeley, when he was a student at Berkeley, because science fiction is the bard, you might say, of science. Well, it certainly spurs the imaginations of uh, most budding young scientists to thinking about problems on grand scale. That's true, and Einstein himself said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Does science fiction stimulate you into your interest in science, physics in particular? Oh, definitely. Uh, started to think that it might be possible that the future could be different from the past, which is, in terms of civilizations, a fairly new idea. And particularly that the images of new frontiers, which appeals to Americans, such as space, for example, or even voyaging through time, really gets to the feeling who we are. I think that's why science fiction works and why it's, in this last half century, become the big new thing in popular culture. Mm -hmm. I actually found that there's some sort of distinction between what some people call science fiction and what people just call SF. Is there a distinction there? Is one hard science fiction, one soft? You never know what people mean by terms until they point to (laughs) specific examples. To me, hard science fiction is that which is scrupulous about how science is done and the content of science. Speculative fiction, a term from a couple of decades back, really means tennis with the net down, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) You just make up any old damn thing. Everything becomes unfortunately, a metaphor for something else. But uh, scrupulously thinking about how science affects us is really the big agenda of our time, because obviously science and technology is the big driver of change in our civilization. And the Americans, of course, were the first to really feel that in their bones, which is why they came to dominate modern science fiction. Carl Jarossi uh, actually prefers the term science in fiction for actually exploring these issues. 
Right. That's fine, but it doesn't describe science fiction because yeah. Jurassic usually talks about the bug that's about to hit our windshield. And his very limited scenarios are basically about science in our current culture, which is a fine thing to write about. I've written a bunch of novels that way, too. Mm-hmm. But the trick is that they rapidly become the past. You can't do much about the bug that's about to hit your <laughs> windshield. Um, so who are you a fan of in science fiction literature or literature in general? I just believe in the usual canon. People like Heinlein, particularly in Clark, Bradbury, they really greatly influenced me. And in fact, I slowly got the idea that you could have a career in the sciences, and it would be exciting, whereas most of the people around me were just going to go into retail sales or something. And I was petrified in fear of that, because I've never been able to do anything very well unless I found it interesting. I just have a very low boredom threshold. (laughs) Because science unfolds endlessly. It's really very profound because you can keep asking, well, how does that work? And you can go further and further back in the mechanisms until you get to the real unanswerable questions like, why is there scientific law, for example? And we all know that human law is completely malleable and that there is only one class that's above the law, and that's lawyers. (laughs) Scientific law, you actually cannot break. Why does the universe have to have laws you can't break? Well, plausibly, because it would get too rickety and wipe out all the life forms. But where does that come from? And what sets the laws? I I mean, that's basically the agenda of science, except it doesn't really give you the final answer. That's the trick. It doesn't tell you why it has to be that way. It just says, here's the way it is, kid. Sort of the frustrations a lot of scientists feel is that sometimes they can't find out the answers quick enough, that the experiments that are needed to be done take years to find out the answer. Or lifetimes. Sure, it's the short attention span problem. That's actually a gift. Because if you got all the answers right away, what would you do next week? (laughs) (laughs) Look for the next question, I guess. (laughs) Well, as Ted Surgeon used to say, ask the next question. But he always assumed there was always going to be a next question. Does anyone really want to have a final answer to everything? Sometimes the quest might be a little more intriguing. Yeah, well, the journey is more important than the destination in human lives. Because let's face it, we all know our destination, don't we? That and taxes are the only certainties, right? We are taxes. (laughs) That's interesting. So what do you think really are the big questions in, well, physics one and then science in general two? Well, in physics, why did the universe have to be designed this way? I mean, we keep getting blindsided, yet another bug on the windshield, by things like the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. Believe me, no one saw that coming even five years ago, that there would be this huge acceleration. Most conventional wisdom, even in the middle 90s, was the expansion was going to decelerate because of the pull of gravity. And now we know that the dominant energy term in the whole equation for the universe is this acceleration mechanism, and no one knows what it is. It's actually a colossal scandal when you look at it that way. We have things like string theory been around for 30 years. How come string theory didn't say, hey, it's going to turn out this way? Instead, they were just as surprised as everybody else. I mean, in, in a sense, that's shocking. Dark matter slows the acceleration, Mm. and it's more significant in terms of energy density than we are, we ordinary particles. And we kind of suspected dark matter was around for the last 30 years, but dark energy, Mm. nobody saw this coming. Nobody. So what about science in general? What are the big questions left there? Well, we've got first big questions about what the hell are we going to do with ourselves. The next century is going to give us the capability of making all kinds of biological changes in human reproduction and human construction. And along with that, it's going to come an even bigger play out in human longevity. 
For the last two centuries, the mean lifespan increased by 50% in a century. That was true the 19th and the 20th century. If that happens in the 21st century, we're going to have plenty of people living to over 100. Boy, does that change the human landscape. For one thing, everybody's worried about environmentalism. Good idea. But one of the reasons that nobody ever states is because we live long enough to see the changes. A couple thousand years ago, nobody saw the changes because they only lived about 30 years. But if you have people who live well over a century, they're going to worry about the environment. In that sense, the environmentalists have a lot to look forward to if we could just get to that point. So I'm curious, when did you decide you wanted to write science fiction currently with uh, your science work? I began writing fiction generally when I was in graduate school as a kind of hobby that I could do instead of just always doing theory and experiment, because I do both in physics. And I found it was really hypnotic. It's, let's put it this way. It's, it's cheaper than paying a psychotherapist. <laughs> in fact, people will actually pay you to write down your thoughts about emotions and people and so forth. So it's always seemed to me to be almost like a private vice. And I've just been unusually lucky that I've had a successful literary career. Who knows why? Um, I recall Rod Serling actually once said that the reason he was attracted to the genre, at least of science fiction writing, was that it allowed him to kind of explore themes that might be a little too sensitive to explore in the general everyday kind of setting. Oh, sure. Uh, the terrible thing about conventional fiction is that it's uh, like going to a polite lady's tea in which either you're going to gossip about scandal or you're going to wax romantic about the latest things of your friends. Uh, but science fiction says, hey, what about this and what about that? And have you ever even considered these alternatives? And it turns out that they have big human implications that you never saw coming. And I've always thought that was more interesting than the neighborhood gossip. So you're also one of the authors expanding the uh, classic foundation series by Isaac Asimov. I was curious, was that experience different, a little more difficult than writing your other books? Oh, sure. Isaac's widow, uh, Janet, asked me to consider writing a novel in the series because she was concerned that the whole Foundation series would just go out of print and be forgotten, which I thought was unfounded. Yeah. But actually, I turned her down. And then about a year later, I found that my unconscious was producing this plot line, and I've learned to always pay attention to the unconscious. So instead of just writing one novel, I pulled a couple of my buddies, David Brin and Greg Bear, into the project, mm -hmm. and we did three novels in a row and found that we couldn't really mine all the material out. We had some fun writing the books, but there's still more to be done. The ideas he introduced just have enormous play, and much could be done with them. So yeah, it was, it was a fun project. It's one of the things you do when you become a professional writer, is that you do things because they keep you interested. It's not errant careerism. It's really just the joy of the work. It's always been that way for me. I actually like writing. I know a lot of writers who like having written. <laughs> I don't give a damn about having written, really. So, some writers I know, like a well-known fantasy novelist, said, you know, I'm sure you do as I do. Uh, whenever you get your new hardcover in, you take a couple of days, and you sit down, you reread the whole book just to see how it is in print and so forth, and then put it on your brag shelf. And I realized with a shock that I was completely unlike this guy whom I've known. It was George uh, Railroad Martin. Because I don't have a brag shelf at all. I, I've never even seen all my books in order. But I never reread any of my books either when they come out. I don't reread anything. I mean, I've been there, done that. It's mm. like looking at photos of your old girlfriends or something. Mm. Not come to think of it that I don't do that. <laughs> uh, but to me, the process of having written is completely uninteresting. I'm just interested in doing the writing. Sounds sort of like your career in science as well. Too. That's true. I you know short attention span thing. I've, <laughs> I worked in four or five different fields. In fact, I was made a fellow of the 
American Physical Society a few months ago, and somebody came up to me and said, in the UCI physics department, gosh, I was amazed to see how many fields you worked in. And uh, I thought for a moment, and I said, uh, you know, so was I. I'd forgotten, actually, <laughs> I worked in several of those fields, in particle physics, solid state, plasma physics, astrophysics, blah, blah, blah. But I just took up problems as they became interesting. That's all. Well, so your new book is actually quite interesting as well. It's a continuation of a previous novel, The Martian Race. And without giving out too much away, can you tell us a little bit about what's in store for the two heroes of the first novel? Well, The Martian Race was about a race to get to Mars, Mm -hmm. to win a prize. One of the systems that the Europeans used to explore the planet, and it's a good method because you say basically, go to this place, Mars, and bring back samples and everything, and and we'll pay you. Until then, there's no money out front. You've got to front everything. The Europeans learned a lot about Asia that way, for example, (laughs) the British fleet particularly. And in the Martian race, they actually, after a year and a half on the surface, they find subterranean life, which is now looking far more probable than when I wrote the book. Mm. I mean, the presence of methane in the atmosphere, these large frozen glaciers of water beneath the surface that are now detected from orbit, that suggests that Mars was wet for a long time, continuously in the past, and therefore life had a good chance. Anyway, The Sunborn, the new novel, opens 20 years later, and they've really learned a lot about the subsurface life, but there are things they don't understand. And it turns out that it's linked to events at the very edge of the solar system, out on Pluto. And no one could understand how or why. So the point of the novel is to try to open the whole landscape and talk about life in a very more general way than just organic cells in a water solution. And how in the world could there be anything interesting on Pluto, which is supposed to be frozen solid? I thought it was just a fun idea for thinking outside the box. And it allowed me to go back to those same characters whom I enjoyed working with, the Victor, the Russian astronaut, and, uh, and the Australian biologist who's married to him. It was kind of fun to go back and spend some time with those people again inside my head. And he came up with some interesting aliens as well. One of them calls plasma-based alien. Right. The whole big idea is yeah. that there are other kinds of self-organized structures than us. And in fact, they're made out of plasma, which is everywhere in the universe. Yeah. 98% of the material matter in the universe is plasma, not cold stuff like us. It's impossible for me to believe that this stuff, which we know organizes itself readily through currents and electric fields, hasn't produced interesting structures. I mean, we're a decided minority in this universe, cold, solid stuff, and we ought to realize it. Do you have a particular fascination with extraterrestrial intelligence or our searches right now for finding it? What do you think of uh, SETI, for instance? I think SETI is a good idea, but it's looking at a very short range. Mm-hmm. We ought to be doing a genuine study of the whole plane of the galaxy every day, looking for beacons, because that's how aliens would really announce themselves. Mm-hmm. They're not going to broadcast continuously to nearby stars, or, well, some may, but obviously, from the SETI search we've done in the last 20 years, nobody is near us. Mm-hmm. And after all, let's face it, we do live in the outskirts. We live in the boonies. Who would pay attention to us? The best thing to do is to look up in the night sky and see the beacons from downtown Manhattan if you happen to live in New Jersey. And so I think we ought to look particularly toward the center of the galaxy and in the plane and look for bright occasional transmissions. Unfortunately, we're not at the moment, and I hope we, we will change that strategy because we've looked at only a tiny fraction of the galaxy. Do you think we even recognize the signal? Should we happen to find it? That's always a problem, but we should look for something as plainly artificial, a very narrow in frequency, on for only a while, and maybe rippled so that you can see some message on it. Something that looks non-natural. 
Are there any other fields of physics that you're particularly excited about? Well, you've always got to be interested in cosmology, the origin, nature, and destiny of the universe. And particle physics is a continuing pleasure. It particularly interests me about computation, uh, quantum computation. I mean, how fast can computers get, really? Because that's going to be a major problem within a couple of decades. We're going to get to the point where we can plausibly, if we can write the software correctly, really reproduce intelligence. You can have systems that appear to be just as smart as you are, or maybe even more smart. And that's coming up on the horizon. The people living today will see systems that you could mistake for ordinary, good, smart people, mm -hmm. right. the classical Turing right. test. Right. Boy, is that going to change our ideas. Let's see, so uh, are you working on another novel right now? Is there anything coming down the pipeline that we could all be expecting? Not really. I'm thinking of writing a few books of nonfiction instead of fiction for a bit, uh, just for a change of pace. I've still got a lot of research I'm working on. I'm on the board of the Planetary Society, and we're going to try to launch the first solar sail sometime in the next few months. So I'm working on that a lot. I've been working for NASA on lightweight spacecraft and quick ways of getting around the solar system for a while, which is kind of uh, new and fun, as usual. It's yet another area that tickled my nose, so as far as I'm concerned, it tastes like champagne. It does look like we're slightly out of time. Professor Benford, I just want to thank you for joining us on the program, talking about uh, all the fascinating things you've talked about, and of course your book, uh, The Sunborn. So. Well, thanks. It's always fun to get back to Berkeley. And you were just listening to Professor Gregory Benford discussing science fiction and his new novel, The Sunborn. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we are back from the break, and Professor Gregory Benford, author of The Sunborn, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, What Planet Were They Born On? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, what planet were they born on? Professor Benford, are you ready to play our game, the uh, Grokatron 5000? Sure. Okay, very good. The Grokatron 5000, question number one, Tiger Woods. Pluto. He's a cool dude. <laughs> cool under pressure, huh? Yeah. All right, number two, what planet were they born on? The British royal family. Dopopolis, the artificial community orbiting the Earth, because um, they all appear to be very, very thick. You know, they're really just a bunch of Germans who were brought over two centuries ago. So, uh, number three, great uh, science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov. Clearly a Venusian, because he was beyond comprehension in his brilliance. I mean, Isaac told me once that he never forgot a joke, and then proved it by telling me five camel jokes in a row, wow. which he apparently had in alphabetical order or something. <laughs> oh <my> Woof. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. So that's some kind of intellect, I think. Yeah, um, Murray Goldman, who won the Nobel Prize in particle physics, told me the same thing. They both came from Brooklyn. Wow. <laughs> 
Uh, let's see. So number four, the Teletubbies. Mercury. Mercury. Why is that? I have no idea. <laughs> but if you go there, you're going to find them. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think anybody would go there now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Finally, number five, the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Mars. Mars. Definitely Mars, the god of war. <laughs> <laughs> Of course it had to be, and uh, Professor Benford, I, I do want to thank you for uh, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, <laughs> joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, and of course discussing your new book, uh, The Sunboard. Okay, hey, thanks a lot, it was fun. All right, thank you. All right, well, fascinating stuff. Always uh, good to hear physicists and uh, sci-fi writer talk about <laughs> what planet people are from. So is it real more science or more fiction? I think it needs a little bit of science and fiction. Indeed. Well, it's kind of a cool thing, actually. Uh, this week we had a pleasant surprise from a listener out in Canada. In Canada, Ontario, right? Ont- uh, is it Ontario? Yeah. Yeah. Frank Gombeck produced a very... Pretty cool name. <laughs> Frank, I guess... Oh, didn't... speaking of last name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should change your first name to Gombeck, and then you can be ah, Gombeck Lane. Oh, yes. So he produced a, a nice metal casting of our show, Berkeley Grog. Looks like a brain. <laughs> Which is good, because we have very little of those. <laughs> Sometimes I use it. Right. We definitely want to thank him for that. That, hey, was, thanks a lot. Yeah, that was definitely very cool. And if you want to check out this casting, you should go to his website. It's www.theworkshop.ca. And I guess that's because he has a workshop there. In Canada. In Canada. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Frank. Yes, right. Hello. It's Earl Grey Poupong Plop with a question of the week. You know, these continentals and all, always striving, yet they didn't receive their magic squares and all. Yes, magic squares was what they're really fighting for. Well, as we here in the Great British Empire knew, all the rows and columns add up to a certain number. Very fascinating and all. Something you continentals will have to find when you become Part of our great British Empire. <laughs> now for a spot of tea. Hmm, and Yoda with this week's question of the week. Mysterious and dangerous the universe is, but fear it you should not. Hmm. But one mystery remains the cross of the Einstein. Where is it? What is it? Hmm. If you know or think you know, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. Hmm. But mysteries beyond the force you will see. Hmm. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Girl in the Green Jacket. Thank you.